0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit providencetx.org.
1: Formed around a simple vision, and that is to make the gospel of Jesus Christ unignorable in our city. And it's that hope and aim every single week that we dive into the word of God because we believe that it carries within itself everything we need as believers to know, worship, and obey Jesus Christ. Amen. So it's a great day to be in the Word, and that's exactly where we'll be. And uh, we've been going through the book of Exodus starting since the beginning of the year, and we've now reached kind of like phase two, part two of Exodus, called the Mountain of God. We're discussing the story of God's people, the Israelites, in the wilderness and their journey through the wilderness and what God has in store for them there. So hope you're excited. Uh, Our text today is going to be found in Exodus chapter 16, and we're going to start in verse 9. Uh, if you didn't bring your Bible this morning, you can grab one in the seat pocket in front of you. It's going to be on the screen as well. If you do grab one of the pew Bibles there, it will be on page 54 or 58, depending on if you got an old or new one. You can tell how how greasy it feels if it's old or new, and then you can go to the according page. Just kidding. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that as a gift from us uh, so you could have it and treasure it. But once again, uh, you can turn there or scroll there, however you're getting there today, Chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 9. If you're willing and able this morning, if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word. we got a good amount of text to cover, so bear with me. Enjoy the word, and don't pass out by locking your knees. Okay, so 16, chapter 16, verse 9. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was, and Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like the coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An Omer is the tenth part of an This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I want to say welcome, especially if it's your first time. Thank you for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. Like Eric said, we're continuing our work through the book of Exodus, and we're kind of following the story as now the children of Israel have made it across the Red Sea and through the waters of Moran. They're making their way to, the, to Mount Sinai, where God had promised unto Moses that the same mountain that he revealed himself to Moses on it would be that mountain that he that he would bring the children of Israel out of Egypt that they might worship him there. And so this morning what we're going to be doing is kind of picking up the story where Cory left off last week where the children of Israel are grumbling because they're hungry. God's already given them water at Marah, made the bitter water sweet, and now he's going to do a wonderful miracle of making bread fall from heaven that they might be able to eat. And so we're going to be doing a lot of New Testament work, probably 80-20, 80%, 20%, 80% New Testament, 20% Old Testament. The reason is because when you read through Exodus, the entirety of Exodus is pointing towards the New Testament reality, right? It's pointing towards the redemption uh, that is in Christ Jesus. And so it's, it's, it's it's easy to see that as you're reading through some of it and less easy to see it in other times. This is one of those times, though, that there's like a one-to-one correlation between what happens in Exodus and what happens in the life of Jesus. There's an actual story where Jesus just outright says it. There's no allegory to it. He just tells you, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. And and in case you don't have any framework for like, well, what does that mean? He says, like your fathers ate in the wilderness with Moses, I'm that. And so we're going to talk some about that and get into it. So there's a lot of layers. We're, gonna, we're making our way towards, towards the end, and we got a lot of text to read. I know Eric just out a lot of scripture he just read. We're going to read more, okay? But just stick with me. It's going to be good. Before I get into it, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. If you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Father, thank you that your word's true and that we can be certain that even just with our hearts submitting ourselves now humbly under your word, that you are doing good work in us. No matter if we have come now this morning feeling worthy or not, that if we simply put faith in the name of Jesus, that we can be sure that you're doing good work by the power of your spirit. Thank you, God, that that's true. And so we ask now, give us ears to hear, eyes to see what your word was meant to say to your people thousands of years ago and also, Lord, what you mean to say to us now that we might be encouraged appropriately, challenged appropriately, perhaps even rebuked or admonished, but maybe even comforted or spoken to with a gentle word. No matter what it is, God, you know what we need. We ask that you would give It to us, both individually and corporately as your people, because we trust that every time we open your word, it will never return void. And so we ask all of these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's start in this this first bit, just kind of overviewing what Eric just read to us. So we picked up with the people who are hungry, and they're grumbling is is the word that the Bible uses. That same exact word is going to be used later in the New Testament as to why God is provoked to anger as the children of Israel are in the wilderness is that they're grumblers. You know, they're constantly kind of in the background grumbling against God's lack of uh, providing for them what they perceive that they need or what they really want. And so they're grumbling and God says to Moses, tell the people of Israel, I've heard they're grumbling and I'm going to meet their needs. And what he does is he sends them quail at night and he sends them bread from heaven in the morning and gives them specific instructions as to how they're supposed to handle this. Now, before I get into those instructions, which there's four major ones, I just want us to pause and think, the Bible says, for 40 years, God dropped bread from heaven for them every single morning. For 40 years, every morning, they get, got breakfast from God. That's kind of a huge deal. This is not just a one-time thing. And what the Bible tells us is that it's a flat, unleavened piece of bread that's sweet. I would just think like bigger frosted flake. You know, every morning, that's what they got from God. And at some point they legitimately, and just in case you don't think that you and I would be like this, we would. At some point they're like, can we like mix the menu up? Like they're frustrated at what God's offering. It's incredible. But he tells them four major things. The first is he tells them how much to gather per person. And you would think like in a room like this, you would think, hey, like some of us, for instance, me might be eating a little more than other people. You know, like maybe God doesn't get this correct, you know, and like little people like not my son, my son eats as much as me, but like little people eat a little less. God says, no, just gather the same amount. And what the Bible says is that every single person, no matter what their size were or you know, diet or proclivities, if, if they you know, gathered a little, they, got, they were full and they didn't have any left over and there was no lack and if you gathered a lot, that there was none left over, it was perfect. That basically, as long as you followed God's commands of measuring it with an omer, you were good. The second thing he says is, whatever you do, don't try to you know, be a hoarder and gather two omers, three omers. You know, the capitalist in the group, he's like, don't gather four and then start selling off later and building a business. It's not going to work. You know, there's going to be worms that eat this. Now we know the Bible records, it didn't take them a day to break that rule. There's always that guy that's like, I'm going to make a little extra. You know, I know my lazy, you know, buddy Joe, he's not going to, he's going to be hungry later. I'm going to, I'm going to gather more. And it, it ends up being that gets worms, they stink and it doesn't work. Number three says, on the sixth day, I want you to gather twice as much because I'm going to give you rest on the Sabbath. So God provides for them that which they need to be obedient to this Sabbath command to rest, which hasn't been written down in stone, but the children of Israel know it as a a principle since creation that on the seventh day, God rested. And so they're going to rest on the Sabbath. And in the fourth one, he does something odd. And this is why we're going to spend most of our time in the New Testament. He says, I want you to set aside some of the manna for future generations as a memorial that future generations will know about this miracle. And what ends up happening is Aaron puts it in a jar and he sets it uh, before it says the, the testimony. Well, later it's going to be the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, which we're going to read about building, and it goes inside the Ark of the Covenant as something that the future generations will know God brought bread from heaven to feed his people. Now, briefly, let's talk about what this could have meant for them or what it means for the children of Israel. And then I want to go to the New Testament and say, what's the deeper Future meaning that we're going to try to grab out of it. So number one, gather this much per person, and it's going to work out no matter what size you are, no matter what diet you're on, you know, everybody's going to be filled. And the answer is, when we're obedient to God, there will be satisfaction. When when we are obedient to God, even if everything is not the same in all of our lives, and we're not cookie cutter in every way that God provides, he provides to the full. This is a A direct shot against all of our comparisons, you know, like you woke up and you're like, well, I wish that, you know, Susie Q, she's a lot prettier than me and she doesn't, you know, all those things. No, if you trust God, there's satisfaction and joy no matter who you are and you don't have to compare yourself to each other. doesn't matter what you gather. As long as you're trying to be obedient, there's going to be satisfaction and fullness. Number two, why is it that he tells them not to keep some over? And the answer is pretty simple on this one. Your walk with God is not meant to be a one-time thing. That I put faith in God at this date, and so therefore I'm good to go for good. Or maybe for the children of Israel, it might look something like this. I put faith in God uh, in order to cross the Red Sea. I put the blood on my doorpost, so now we're good. Now we're just going to kind of like go back to doing it our way. No, God says, I want you to walk 40 years in the wilderness, and every day I want you to have to trust me. Every day I want you to have to believe that I'm not only going to bring the sun up in the morning, but I'm also going to bring bread down in the morning. Now, here's the good news about that is whether you know it or not, you already are reliant upon the grace of God like that. Now, God wants to bring you into that realization and help you to be joyful about it. But guess what? You didn't wake up this morning because you ate leafy spinach last night. You woke up this morning because God deemed it so. You're breathing right now because God is giving you breath in and out, in and out. This is how Paul says it. In him you live, you move, you have your being. They're like, you know you know why I have a, a great you know, 401k account and everything's working out? Well, I'm not saying you didn't make meaningful decisions that were good and there was a good fruit from that, but here's overarchingly why that's true, because God deemed it so. He's the one calling the shots here, and he wants the children of Israel to know, hey, that's a good thing. You should trust me. Like the sun came up this morning because God said in the very beginning that he was, not go- he was going to set things into motion and that you could trust the seasons. So that's why the sun came up. And it's going to go down later. And guess what? When you go to sleep, you can tell your kids, hey, in the morning, there's going to be morning. Because God said so. Okay. Number three, on the sixth day, gather twice as much. What's this? This is him reminding the children of Israel, you're going to work, you're going to labor, you're going to toil, you're going to do all of these things. At the end of the day, it is God's work that stands, not our works. God redeems us out of Egypt. Even though Moses holds up the staff, God parts the sea. Even though Moses puts a staff in the water, God turns it red. It's God's work that redeems. It's God's work that carried them out of the land of Egypt. It's God's work that's going to carry them into the promised land. And so he's telling them, I'm going to provide for you food so that one day a week you can be reminded, it's my work that sustains. It's my work that carries on. It's my work that matters. And you can rest. And then number four, and this is why I believe that we should spend our time in the New Testament, why set aside for future generations the manna? You know, there, could, there are many different uh, miracles that God's done so far. Couldn't he have done almost anything and said to remind them of this? But he chooses the manna. And here's what I'll say. It means that there's a lesson in the miracle of the manna that God is setting aside so that future generations will know it and they will have a fuller understanding than the children of Israel do at this moment. That the children of Israel will know in part, but there will be a generation to come that will know in full why he did this miracle. And I want to spend time, because we get the blessing of being on the other side of this, I want to spend time talking about what is the full understanding of the miracle of the manna. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to John chapter 6. And as I promised, I'm going to read a lot of scripture. John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. So if you're turning there, it should also be behind me. Every gospel has a record of this miracle. Now, it's interesting because there's a handful of things that every gospel records. One of those would be like the Passion Week, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Um, and there's a handful of miracles. But mostly the gospels, three of them might record one miracle and one doesn't, or two to two, or one in three. You know, Sometimes there's just one gospel. And it's because it's different perspectives from different disciples. And John gives us the reason why this is so. At the very end of the book of John, he says, if we were to record everything the Lord Jesus did, none of the books could contain it. Because God's, Jesus was not only working on the physical level, he's working on all these different myriad of the things that Christ did are uncontainable. So it's okay that we don't get all of it, but I think there's meaning in saying every gospel writer records this miracle. And three out of the four also connect it to the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. That basically Jesus feeds the 5,000 with bread, The disciples get on a boat. Jesus meets them and calms the storm by walking on the water and walking onto the boat. They get to the other side and Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. That's kind of the sequence. Now I want to read this and I want to talk a little bit about why those are connected and why it matters and why it helps us to understand the meaning of the manna. So let's start in verse 1. John chapter 6 verse 1 says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They're following Jesus because he's been doing some miraculous things. And there's a promise of the Old Testament that there's one to come that's going to be a greater prophet than even Moses, better than even Elijah, you should be looking for him. So they're following him, verse 2. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick, verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? You got to love this. Jesus, he's been doing all these miracles. They're in a desolate place is what other gospel writers say. So I don't know, maybe like a wilderness place. Okay. And Jesus looks to them and much like Moses was probably looking to God saying, "Uh, how are we going to feed all these people now that you brought us out into the wilderness, God? Jesus looks to Philip and says, Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? It's wonderful. Because this is almost inverted in that God would ask Moses, Moses, how are you going to feed all the Israelites? Moses like, I thought you had a plan for that. Jesus asks Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? Philip's like, I'm with you, man. Like, what do you mean? Listen to what Philip says. Verse six is wonderful. He said this to test him. Why did God say he did what he did in the man in the wilderness? To test the people? He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew he's going to fix it. But he's just asking, he's just prodding Philip. Philip, what do you think we should do? Here's what Philip says. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not, be a mu- would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, there's a boy here. He has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? And Jesus says, had the people sit down. And now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. 5,000 in number, most commentators say, would have been, if there's 5,000 men, which is how they would have recorded it at that time, probably 20,000 men, women, and children. Pretty significant crowd. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed it to those who were seated. And so also the fish, listen to this, as much as they wanted. I want you to remember, five loaves, two fish, as much as everyone wants to eat, they eat. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets, filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the barley loaves that had been eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, listen to this, they catch the drift. This is indeed the prophet who is coming into the world. They're believing this is, this is that guy. Verse 15, we often miss this, but it's kind of important, I would say. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They were about to make Jesus the king. They're saying, this is the prophet. This is the guy. He's the one that we've been waiting for. They want to make him king. Jesus wants nothing to do with it, and he withdraws. He doesn't want their earthly kingship. In a moment, we're going to see he doesn't want their accolades to be their earthly prophet because he wants them to see something deeper. Okay, Skip down to verse 22. All we're missing here is the, is the water, uh, walking on the water, and I'm going to come back to that later. Listen to verse 22. On the next day, they're on the other side of the sea. And the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea uh, saw that there had only been one, uh, one boat that remained there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near to the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Oh, so, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Remember, follow me on this. The disciples are told by Jesus, get into the boat and you go ahead and go to the other side. And, and, and they just obey Jesus because at this point he just fed, you know, 5,000, 20,000 people with a little boy's lunch. They're like, let's just do what he says. They get on the boat and it starts to storm and they see Jesus walking on the water and they cry out, it's a ghost. Jesus steps onto the boat, ceases the winds, and they're just like, who is this guy? They get to the other side, and the other crowds that wake up in the morning, they go, hey, we saw the boat leave. We saw the disciples get on the boat, but like, we didn't see Jesus. They look for Jesus. They don't know where he is. They don't realize that he's taking like a different travel route, let's just say, he's walking on the water. So they get on the boat, go to the other side. They're trying to figure out where Christ is. Now watch what happens next, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? I love that question. He's about to answer it in the way that they don't quite understand. They don't know what they're asking. He knows what they really need to hear. When did you come here? They mean by the boat. He's about to say I came from heaven. But let's continue. Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, close quote. Okay. Jesus wouldn't have been good on the connect team. Like, you know, it's like, hey, you're only here for the free coffee, dude. Like, (laughs) that's what he just said. He says, hey, you're not here because you're into spiritual things. You're here because I filled your stomach. You're here because you got a free meal. It's like you are the guy who goes for, the, you know, the, the free gift. You know, you're the guy that uses the free trial for like seven years with different emails. That's what you guys are. All right. <laughs> Verse 27. Watch this. Do not work for the food that perishes But for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus says to them, you need to be thinking spiritual things, not physical things. Stop going after your next meal, and you need to come to realize that I'm bigger than that. Now watch, their response is actually pretty good. Because they say to him, verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So they say, fine, tell us what we need to do then. And Jesus' answer is absolutely wonderful and maybe the very key to understand the entire manna miracle. He says this, verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So you got to remember, manna is happening with the children of Israel in Exodus right before they're about to go to Sinai to get the commands of God written on stone. These people are coming. They're Jewish people, Jewish crowds telling what should we be doing to be doing the works of God? And Jesus says, believe in me. That's the work of God. That's the culmination. That's the crux. That's the Christian faith in a nutshell. Me, Jesus, not just believing that there is a God, believing in him. He's putting all of the emphasis on me, the one whom God has sent. Let's continue. Verse 30, so they said to him, okay, you want us to believe in you, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they say, hey, we know you just fed uh, 5,000 people, do it again, prove that you are the guy. Moses gave us bread, right? Moses did it in the wilderness. If you're better than him, you can at least show us all. There's probably people there that didn't see it the first time. You know, they heard through the grapevine, there's somebody giving out free food. They're like, hey, do it again. Prove to us that you, you know, perform a work. Prove that you're a prophet. I love Jesus' answer, verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. He reminds them of something unique about the miracle of manna. In a lot of the other miracles, Moses used the staff, remember? Or even the last miracle in Morah, where he throws the wood into the water. The wood is the, is the act, right, to make the water sweet. With manna, Moses is merely the announcer who tells them what God's going to do. God says that you may know that I am the Lord. I will bring you bread from heaven. So Jesus rebukes them and says, it's not Moses who fed you. It was God who fed you. Now you got to think about why that would be key. Let me read the rest and I'll tell you why. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. We're interested. Jesus says to them, I'm the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus reminds them that it it was not Moses who brought the bread, who brought the manna because he's doing two things. Number one, he's telling them he is greater than any earthly substance or gift or bread. He's the bread from heaven. And deeper than that, he's saying, I am the God of the bread of heaven. I am the bread of life. That's one of seven I am statements from Jesus in the book of John. Eight, if you count him saying before Abraham was, I am. Now, if you've been here throughout the book of Exodus, you know that this is The the very words given to Moses when he says, tell me your name, tell me your name. How are you different from the Egyptian gods? And God tells Moses, I am who I am, Moses, Yahweh. I am who I am. And Jesus stands before the Jews and says, I am the bread of life. It's a deity passage here, and this is without question. He's not equating himself merely to be the greater Moses. Jesus is not willing to simply be the greater David when they make him king. He's saying, I am their God, and I am your God. I am who I am. He's saying, I'm not just a greater David or or a David to come. I'm not just an Elijah or an Elijah to come. I'm not just a Moses and a Moses to come. I am who I am. And then, of course, there's something else happening here, which you have to read the other gospels in order to catch. I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but in the the book of Mark, chapter number six, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then there's the story of Jesus walking on the water. And I want to read to you this interesting included line from Mark. It says it in verse number 52. It says, and when he got into the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. But look at the highlighted portion. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. That's interesting, isn't it? They're astounded about Jesus walking on water. They're astounded that this guy commands the seas. And Mark records the reason they're astounded. They don't understand their hearts are hardened. because they did not understand the loaves, the miracle of manna. It's safe to say there's something about the miracle of the loaves, which is inextricably linked to the miracle of manna in Exodus, and it transcends God's mere compassion for hungry people. And I want to say this. I'm not saying that that's not a part of it. I'm saying it's more than that, not less than that. God is not merely compassionate upon our frailty when we're hungry. He's more than that. We can get compassionate for one another when we're hungry. When we see a child that's hungry, we see each other, and we would be moved by that. God's moved not just by what's happening physically, but Jesus looked at Jerusalem and he didn't see just starving people and feel bad. He said, They are like sheep without a shepherd. They are spiritually hungry. They are starving. They have no food for their souls. See, the man of miracles more, not less than, but even more than just the compassion of God, which is astounding enough. The reason I say this is, as human beings, we are, safe to say, a labyrinth of frenetic activity, both externally and internally. And I'm saying this because every day, and I'm saying most likely, even this morning when we woke up, the wheels in our minds started turning about all the things that, you know, everything started rushing in on us. Right when you woke up, that started happening to you. When we, when we read like 38 verses from Exodus, it started happening to some of you. When I was in the middle of John 6, some of you were like, man, I, I was want to mow today and it rained. I know that. Because when we wake up every single day, it's, what do I have to do today? I, you know, i got to get the kids dressed for school. i got to get gas on the way to work. You get in the car, you turn on some music, and then you, your mind starts to turn. What do I have to do at work in order to be successful at work? What tasks do I need to get done at the house whenever I get home? What time do I need to be leaving for work so I can get home, do the task, then take the kids to soccer, come back, get food, get them in the, the shower, and then bed, maybe not shower? Depends got to pay the bills, you got to get a babysitter for Friday night, got to reschedule the doctor's appointment that you missed, that you should have gone to, but you can't tell your wife. He you, you missed it because you did something else. And then maybe some of you turned on the news this morning, and God forbid you did that, because then it's a whole other thing, isn't it? Like maybe you turned, you decided, hey, let's see what's going on in the world. Just as a side note, do that rarely. Because now you're thinking, how can I keep my family safe in this crazy world? How can I get ahead of inflation? If you listen for long enough, you're like, how do I start a backyard garden in case it all just falls apart? And then there are things that you don't even know are coming for you today, and me too, and then when they get there, you got to start dealing with all of that, and the activity cranks up even more. It's like you walk out in the morning, and you got your plans, and then there's a flat tire. Now everything changes. You're driving, you're going to be on time to work until that train comes by that you didn't even think came by at that early in the morning, and now it is. You woke up this morning thinking you're going to get at church. You're going to make it to the nine o'clock service until you got to the bathroom and your child smeared toothpaste all over the mirrors and you hit their forehead. And you're like, I trusted them with the toothbrush. And they're like 14, you know, you're like, I thought you grew out of this, you know? (laughs) And then of course, there's the existential crisis that happened to us internally. It's like, you got a little bit of time yesterday so you could watch a movie with your wife and it started getting your gears turning or something. And you're like, man. It's a real deep movie, and you're. Am I happy in life? You know, you watched Forrest Gump. You thought it'd be funny. It wasn't. You're like, oh no! Like, I, is my life purposeful and meaningful? You know. Now, so far, I've mentioned all of that, and I haven't said a single solitary word about the considerations we have of our spiritual life, the walk, our walk with God, and I, the reason I didn't is because it's no wonder that with that kind of frenetic activity, both externally and internally happening, it's no wonder that we would then shift into our spiritual life and handle it the same way. That we would bring that same kind of anxious toil into our spiritual life. It looks kind of like this. We, we start thinking about Jesus, and then after all of that, like, oh man, I got to get right with God. And you probably ask a lot what the Jews ask, like, what should we be doing to be doing the works of God? How, how do I get right with God? How do I get my prayer life right? I need to pray more. How do I start reading the scriptures more? You went to home group You know, that one mom that has the same amount of kids with you started quoting scripture and you're like, who am I? I do not know scripture like that. And so now you're like, I need to get, you know, more audio Bible in my life. Need to pray more, need to, am I doing this enough? Am I doing this enough? You know, you fill in the blank and you kind of see that with the disciples too, don't you? You see it with the crowd, you see it with the children of Israel. It's like Moses bring, just trying to be obedient to God, brings the children of Israel out of Egypt. And now it's like, hey, you got to feed these people. He's like, oh my gosh, I got to feed a million people. How am I going to do that? How about this one? You know, we're out in the middle of the desolate wilderness with Jesus. Jesus is doing his ministry thing. And then Jesus turns to he you says, hey, what's for lunch? And you're like, well, you tell me what's for lunch. You know, what are we going to do? How about this one? You're going you're to row to the other side of the you know, sea and you're gonna, we're going to do ministry over there. Problem, storm comes. Now what are you going to do? Oh, no, we didn't let Jesus get in the boat first. It's like t- tactical error. you got to make it to the mountain to worship God there. Uh Uh-oh, problem. There's no water, and you're starving to death. These are all the things that are coming at them quickly. And all of these things, especially in the case of the disciples, seem to be things that are keeping them from understanding the miracle of the loaves. And in so doing, it's hindering them to understand God himself. It's hindering them from understanding who Jesus is. I want to to read from Mark chapter 8. This is only two chapters after what I just read you. In Mark chapter 8, and this is interesting, Jesus feeds the 5,000 in Mark 6. Here's what he does. He does it again, but he feeds the 4,000. He literally does the miracle twice in a lot of the Gospels where he feeds 5,000 people, then 4,000 people. And I'm going to pick up in verse 14 directly after the second time Jesus has just taken a little bit of lunch and multiplied it into thousands. Listen to what happens in verse 14. And I think you're going to really resonate with the disciples here. Let's start in verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. First thing you should do is underline this. And they had only one loaf left with them in the boat. Guys, this is uh, four verses after he just fed 4,000 people. Verse 15. Jesus cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. That's a bread reference, but it's obviously something bigger than that, right? We all can catch that. Watch this, verse 16. So the disciples began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Verse 17, Jesus being aware of this said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five lobes for 5,000, how many baskets full did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And he said, the seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Jesus is very patient with them. But what I try not to do here is put myself like I would be on Jesus' side and be like, Jesus, I wish they understood. Because that's what we tend to do. You're like, man, come on, guys. No, this is us. God manifestly makes himself known as the great I am. Don't think of ourselves more highly than Israel who saw the Red Sea part and immediately they don't think that he can feed them. They saw Pharaoh go down in a heap, doesn't think they can, he can make them have water. Jesus just fed 5,000, then 4,000, and the one issue that they should not have, they have, I don't think we have enough bread. Now, what's the point of the 12 and the 7? It's. I wish I had a lot of time, but 12 representing all of the disciples, all of the tribes of Israel, that God's provision is complete. The disciples spent their time serving all the thousands, and guess what they picked up? Twelve basketfuls for themselves. They could never eat what's in the basketfuls. It's complete. God completely provides for his people. And the second time, what happens? They pick up seven baskets full. You know what seven represents? There are seven days in all of creation representing perfection, completion, infinity, perpetua- perpetually, God provides. That's the idea. He provides completely. And he provides perpetually because he is God for his people. And so the miracle of the loaves, and and listen, hear me on this. The miracle of the loaves is very simple, but that doesn't make it easy. And it is this. Jesus alone is worthy of your trust. And trusting him is much more profound. It's much deeper than the trite words that we've used to describe Christian faith. We don't just trust Jesus with a compartmentalized version of our, like Jesus is for our spiritual life and then we have the rest of our lives that we trust ourselves. To trust Jesus and understand the loaves, it means that you know, you trust Jesus to redeem you. You trust Jesus to provide for you. You trust Jesus, listen to me, to satisfy your every desire. You trust Jesus to protect you. You trust Jesus, listen, and think about Sinai. You trust Jesus for the strength and ability to obey the commands that he gives. Or as Augustine said, give what you command, Lord, and then command whatever you will. The children of Israel are about to be given the law and God wants them to know, before I give you the law on the tablets of stone, you must know what undergirds the law. And that which undergirds the law is this fundamental truth. And it means this for us, Christian, you'll never grow into the image and likeness of Christ without this foundation built. And that is, you must trust Christ fundamentally for everything. For what, Court? For for everything. The reason that you and I don't obey the law, the reason that you and I sin is for no other fundamental reason than the fact that we simply do not trust God. That was the sin of our first parents in the garden, and it's continually our sin today. We covet because we do not trust that Jesus can keep us content and satisfied without the same things that our neighbor has. You didn't even know that that truck existed until your neighbor got it, and now you're certain that you cannot live happy without it, even though you didn't know it was a thing. You didn't know that you could get internet in that desolate place, but now you want fast internet. We lust because we don't trust that Jesus can keep us satisfied without acting on our carnal desires. We kill because we don't trust that Jesus is the only one to justly govern us. We must do it. We lie because we don't trust that Jesus can sustain us in the truth, even when the truth stings. We grumble because we don't trust that Jesus is better than our circumstantial hardship. We sin, friends, because we don't trust Jesus. That's at the fundamental level. Now, we could go on. You could say, well, you don't even know me. I sinned because of my past. I sinned because of my childhood. I sin." Well, fine. That's all fine and good. But at the fundamental level, I am still correct which is that you and I don't trust that Jesus can help us overcome our childhoods. You and I don't fundamentally trust that all the things that have happened to us, Jesus could heal us from that, and we don't have to act that way anymore. Fundamentally, we don't trust God, and therefore we sin. It's why Paul tells us that we must fight the good fight of faith. Another way to put that would be all of our ambition, all of our strength, all of our power, all of our focus that we can muster should be aimed in one single direction to trust Jesus with our whole being. You see, we've cheapened the idea of faith to just simply being, repeat after me, and now you have faith. You see, the biblical faith is wholeheartedly casting all of your whole being onto Christ. If you cannot say with confidence that all of your eternity hangs upon Jesus being who he said he is, then I challenge whether or not you've really understood the loaves just yet, or in other words, really understood what Christianity is. Paul didn't say, well, you know what? If I die in Jesus and who he says he is, I still had a good life. That's not what Paul said. He said, if if I die and Christ is not raised, woe is me, I'm most pitiable creature of all. I wasted my whole life. I should have just ate, drank, and be merry. But then he says, but Christ is raised. He is alive. He is who he said he is. You see, real faith is what I would say is hanging everything, the eternity of your entire soul on the fact that Jesus really is alive. And the miracle of manna is to say, it's the only bread you can eat that saves There's a lot of bread offered to you. There's only one loaf in the person of Christ that was broken and shared with you that gives life. Which leads me to the end here, and I wish I had time to read the rest of John. I did get to do it with the nine o'clock. I would encourage you to do it. In verses fifty two through fifty nine, Jesus ends his sermon, which I always jokingly say, Jesus was like the worst megachurch preacher ever. He has 20,000 people and he preaches the most seeker, non-sensitive sermon that has ever been preached. He says, and I quote, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. It says the Jews grumbled and said, does this man give us his own body to eat? And Jesus doesn't say, let me clarify about communion. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, my flesh is true meat and my blood is true drink. Unless you eat my flesh and drink, drink my blood, you will not see eternal life. And everybody's like, okay, let's go. Like, is there another church down the road? You know, (laughs) it's seven verses of him continually doubling down on it. It says everyone walks away. It says even the disciples are like, this is a hard saying. And then Jesus turns to the 12 and says, will you guys leave too? You see the act of communion, which is what Jesus was talking about, is an act of faith. It's a visible proclamation that you and I have decided to labor for the food that never perishes. And in so doing, we have rejected laboring for the food that does perish. In other words, it's a rejection of the bread of the world. Herod offers you bread, and the Pharisees offer you bread, and the culture offers you bread, and Hollywood offers you bread, and the U.S. government offers you bread. And when communion, you know what we say? No thanks. (laughs) I'll take the bread of heaven. This is why fasting is so interconnected with this. It's literally physically saying, no, I only want one bread today for 24 hours and it ain't a Taco Bell. I want you, Lord. It's doing something physically to manifest that which you truly believe in your heart of hearts. There's only one true bread that came down from heaven and it was broken to give to me. His body was broken so that it might be divvied up. It's a worship decision in the face of, of everything else the world has to offer. And so I want to end by giving us all that worship decision this morning. If you're in Christ, it's simple for you to make that move. Again, but sometimes it's not easy. And the reason I say it's not easy is because we all know the areas of our life that we do not trust Christ with because we're good compartmentalizers. And so if you're a Christian in the room, it's giving over that portion of you that you still think you're better than God at handling If you're not a Christian in the room, it's very simple but not easy. You, no other person who promises you, no other entity that promises you, you cannot save yourself. There is one bread from heaven. And I know it's, I know it's not easy, but you must abandon all those other self-salvation techniques and you must receive Jesus who lovingly offers himself to you by dying. And so I want to encourage us this morning. The miracle of manna is simple. He's worthy of the trust. And until we fundamentally understand that, you're not growing beyond that. You don't get to grow beyond that. You don't build houses beyond that. You don't build skyscrapers without the foundation. You can to your own detriment. The fundamental is he's, he's worthy of your trust. And by that, I mean all of you. Let me pray for us. Father, so many things, so many words rush to my mind I wish I could say, and time doesn't allow. And so I come to you now, and I ask that you might fill in all of the areas where I have fallen short. Holy Spirit, speak now to each of us individually and collectively, because you know us, and you know that which we need to lay down at your feet. As Dan leads us in communion, I pray that we would be taking of communion and simultaneously rejecting any other bread that the world offers, any other satisfaction, any other self-salvation. And as we sing and worship, I pray that we would be casting down all of the areas of anxiety that we've tried to control, that we might experience freedom in proclaiming loudly that, Lord Jesus, you are our God the great I am. In Jesus' name, amen.